0: This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cash Flowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cash Flowing Rentals is a 10 week online course focused on helping physicians and high income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cash flowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semi and check out the course details on our course landing page.
1: This episode is sponsored by our brand new course called Fast Fire Bookkeeping for Real Estate Investors. Do you have a pile of receipts and a bunch of statements that are stacking up in your office and the pile isn't getting any smaller? Are your rental properties getting you closer to financial freedom? Do you even know how your properties are performing? Well, the answer to your problem is doing your books the right way, and that's what our course is about. We'll teach you how to set up your books the right way, not just for tax time but also so you can unlock the insights that will help you maximize your cash flow. For more information or to sign up, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash fast fire bookkeeping. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Maytee and Kenji.
0: Amanda and Matt, welcome back. We had you back on episode four, and we are so excited to have you back to talk more about taxes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Excited to be
0: here. Yeah, Thanks so much. So there is a lot going on in the tax landscape right now, and we really wanted to start out talking about kind of what are the things you're seeing on the horizon with the CARES Act, Biden, and what kind of changes should real estate investors be aware of?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, I think 2020 was a very interesting year for sure, not just with respect to COVID, but in the tax landscape, there were so many changes, um, and of course, you know we're all expecting a lot more changes coming up as well for the you know the remainder of of twenty
3: twenty one too. So yeah, um, not not just a lot of changes, but so many in such a short period of time. You know, like mm-hmm. once COVID hit, it was kind of just everything ramped up with respect to tax changes, just to you know obviously help stimulate the economy and stuff.
2: But. Yeah, but I think as we head into tax season this year, we're seeing. You know, we're getting a lot more questions about, OK, last year, we we kept talking about some of those great tax benefits and tax changes that came out under the CARES Act for, you know, ability to take money from retirement distributions or all the bonus depreciation and how we can maximize our losses. And although, you know, those were really, really great strategies that came out, but now is kind of, you know, game time when it's really time to report it on the tax return. And there's a lot of decisions to be made, right? To make sure, are we doing it correctly? Because, you know, in taxes um, and like a lot of things in life, I think just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should do it. <laughs> and that I think differs from, you know, investor to investor that we're seeing. Yeah, I
3: think with the, the CARES Act, there was those distributions, the one thing that I think there's still a a lot of misconception about that one is that people, you know, they had the rule that you could take money out of your retirement account early, not pay the penalties. And then the the tax question is, people hear this three-year deferral on the Mm -hmm. CARES Act and they think, well, I don't have to pay taxes for three years. Well, that's that's actually not, unfortunately, that's not the rule. That would be the easiest thing. But what, what they're allowing people to do is to either you pick it up all in income on your 2020 return, or you can spread it out a third on your 20 return, a third on your 21 return, and a third on your 22 return. Um, and you have the choice of which one you wanna do. So when you get around to doing your taxes, that's one thing that people need to keep in mind is that, hey, if my 2020 was a bad year, for example, then maybe I do wanna include it all in my 2020 income because maybe I'll be in a lower rate than I will be in 21 and 22. And you know you're still gonna pay the taxes earlier, but maybe overall you'd be paying less taxes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So this, what you're talking about is there was the allowance for us to take up to a hundred thousand dollars, right? If we had a COVID related hardship, what about people who plan on paying that back? Do they need to then pay a third back every year or can they defer it for those three years and then pay it back? How does that work? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a good question. So you, so if you took out a hundred thousand dollars, you have the choice of paying taxes on that evenly over three years, starting with 2020. So basically, if you took out 100,000, you'd pay taxes on 33,000 of that in 2020. And then you do the same in 2021 and 2022 with respect to the ability to pay it back let's say in year 2 you decided to pay it back then what happens is you can file a amended tax return to claim the refund on the taxes paid that's really a ridiculous rule we're really not sure why they decided to do that instead of just saying hey let you know we'll let you wait until year 3 because it's just an administrative burden right the taxpayer cpas have to file these amended returns but i think what's important is to also see like matt was saying you know if you're an investor who had, you know, a bad year, or you were strategic, right, you claim real estate professional, you did the bonus depreciation and all that. Well, you might choose not to defer the taxes over three years, you might say, hey, well, let me try to pay the you know, offset the taxes now because this year in 2020, I had a lot of write offs that I can use to offset, right, especially since you know, the expectation is that tax rates will increase. In the coming years with the new administration so that's certainly something to think about carefully before you submit your taxes this year
1: so just to clarify are there only two choices you could either say that you made a hundred thousand dollars of income or spread it out over three years those are the only two options mm-hmm.
3: those are the options for paying the tax on it but you you know you do have the option to repay it within three years so you know let's say you, you took it all on your 20 return you filed your 20 return next week and then six months from now you happen to pay it back. You can file an amended return for 2020 to get the taxes back. But you have basically up to three years to kind of pay it back to do that and just undo what's been done. Mm-hmm. But that might be another reason too. Um, you know, I think you know people have questions about extensions. That might be another reason Someone, if someone's on the verge of, hey, I might come into some cash in four months. I might plan to, if I do, I'm going to pay this back. Well, maybe that's the reason to extend your return so that you don't have to file an amended return later because Many returns are going to cost money. Obviously, you're going to pay someone to file it most likely. Obviously, so
2: yeah, I know when this new benefit initially came out, there were some professionals, including us, where we thought, oh yeah, maybe we don't have to pay it. You know, we just wait in year three and then make that final decision. Um, and I think that as a profession, you know, a lot of people were contacting the IRS. They, Is that what? the rules are. uh, But they later came out and said, no, it's you either do it all or uh, you do it evenly over three years. Like I said, you know, we don't agree with the decision, but that's (laughs) that's what they've decided on.
0: Yeah. So for us real estate investors, I think the real key is if you took out that hundred thousand dollars, if you have real estate professional tax status, buy a property with that hundred thousand, you know, get your bonus depreciation, shelter it, and then you don't have to worry about all this.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, $100,000 might be a, you know, three, $400,000 property, right? Exactly. If you're using leverage correctly. So that very well could alleviate or even completely offset the taxes on that income. Um, but on the other side, you know, if you thought you were going to be real estate professional status, and you ended up not getting a deal, you couldn't buy that property, then you could still pay it back before you file your tax returns. And it's like, you know, it's kind of a do over basically, right?
3: Now, remember, this is for 2020, so don't shoot the messenger. This is for 2020 distributions. But going forward, they ha- I have not heard any talk that they're going to kind of bring this back or anything, but, you know, obviously things can change. So
1: makes sense. Can we also talk about something else that was in the CARES Act? There was this carryback. Can you explain what that carryback is and, and some of the questions that you guys have been getting around the carryback?
3: Yeah, that's one. That's one that's been keeping us uh, keeping us busy because that's that's been a good one for people to take advantage of for eighteen and nineteen and even coming into twenty. But basically, the CARES Act, what it did was it brought back what we call net operating losses. So, if somebody easiest way to think about it, somebody's got a negative taxable income on their personal return. If you have that, then the IRS is uh, for the two thousand twenty year giving you the ability to take that loss and carry it backwards five years to your two thousand fifteen return and deducted against income you paid in that year to get taxes refunded, or you're allowed to carry it forward to 2021. So again, kind of going thinking strategically, right? You know, when you're filing your 2020 return, that question is going to come up is what do you want to do with it? You got to look at what, well, what was your 15 return? Like what was your tax bracket? What was your income like versus what do you think 2021 is going to look like? Mm -hmm. So yeah, before the, the couple of years ago, the original rules, you just had to carry losses forward. You couldn't carry them back. But they, they brought this back with the CARES Act to kind of allow people to get some, uh, you know, fusion of cash, against refunds from previous years.
2: Yeah. I, if I can give you an example, two examples of kind of how it works in you know real life cases. So like Matt said, the key is when we're deciding to carry it back for a refund or forward, we're looking at the tax rates. So what was your tax rate in 2015 versus what do you think your tax rate will be in 2021? And some people are thinking, well, um, you know, obviously we're we're hearing of tax increases on the horizon. So, you know, we should probably carry it forward. So we were just talking to an investor recently when they said, you know, in the past, they were both medical professionals like you guys, right? So back in 2015, they're paying very, very high taxes. But after being in your program, you know, they've decided one of them to do real estate. So now one of them going forward is going to be a real estate professional. So even though the US tax rate for the country as a whole might increase, but for them specifically, they don't expect their tax rate to ever go back to what it used to be when they were both working full-time back in 2015. So that decision was easier So, okay, well let's go ahead and carry it back and um, you know, get a refund because our taxes were, were so much higher before, right? We also talked to a, a, another person, almost the, the opposite. We talked about previous versus uh, before, and he was telling me back in 2015, I was still in medical school. <laughs> So I hardly had any income. And in 2016 and 17, just starting out, hardly had an income versus going forward, you know, both are high income earners. And so... You know, for that person, it could make sense to carry it forward because going backwards in time wasn't really going to save them as high of rate. Maybe they were only 10, 15 percent tax bracket. So these are the things that you want to make sure you're talking to your tax person about or at least thinking about in the coming months Um, and not just rush to filing your tax returns and do a carry back just because you can could be very significant differences if you make the right decision.
1: Is that something you're doing for your clients? You're doing that analysis of you know what your tax rate was back in 2015 versus what it could be in 2021 and then giving them the choice.
3: Yeah. I mean, so we like, you know, good examples. You'll finish the 2020 return, it'll show a net operating loss. So then we, you know, if we don't have, you know, if we have a copy of their 15 return, we can quickly look at that and you know quantify the savings. If we don't, we we just request it from them and then get a feeling from them. What do they think 2021 is going to look like? So we can put some numbers to it. So it's, you know, it's a cost benefit analysis really.
2: Yeah. We have some clients that are working with us for the first time. They're just wondering, you know, why are you, why do you want all those old tax returns? No one has ever asked me for those things, but that's the reason is because we're just looking at year by year and trying to figure out what is the most advantageous thing to do.
3: Yeah. I mean, we have one client, uh, this is his 19 return. We had to carry back to 14, but 14 wasn't enough. So we, <laughs> fixing 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, you know, so it, wow. you know, it was big numbers, obviously, but it was a lot of a lot of refund for them, So.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So when you guys are talking about carrying forward, you're carrying back, uh, carrying forward 100% of those losses that they're generating, let's say in 2020. Do you guys see that changing? Or is there anything that you think is going to happen with that over time? So,
3: so for 2020, that's kind of, I mean, knock on wood, I think it's set in stone. Like, you know, I guess they could theoretically go back and change the 2020 laws, but let's hope they don't do that at this point. But going forward for 2021, if the same situation happens in 21 right now, if someone has a net operating loss generated in 21, the rule is going back to the carry forward only. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that could change, obviously, depending on how the economy goes and what they decide to do with what their focus is in terms of tax changes. But yeah. I haven't, I haven't heard that that's on the table.
2: Yeah. I haven't heard that either in terms of um, limiting it. Historically speaking, there has been times where they limit how much net operating loss you can use in any given year, but never a haircut to say it's completely disallowed. So it's been where, okay, well you can only use up to 80% of the loss. The remainder that you don't get to use generally will still carry forward. Um, we've not seen a, a you know, a case historically where they said, oh, you just lose out on an X percentage of a loss. So we hope that's not something coming up.
1: I mean, for real estate investors and for those who are listening, I mean, I think that one of the things you have to think about is the time value of money, having that money coming to you in April of 21. And if you do go back to 2015, having all that money and of course, you have to do something with it. I mean, obviously, if you go out and spend it on a Tesla, then that doesn't make sense. But, you know, if you actually invest it, that money can grow up to the next year when, you know, if you had carried forward and made a different decision, right, then you would have gotten your money at that point. So do you think that the time value of money is a really important thing, an important consideration? Uh, I imagine that's one of the things that you guys probably talk to your clients about. Oh,
3: yeah, for sure. Because when we do these carrybacks, the, the, if you do it right and you file it quickly enough, the IRS is actually required to review it and issue the refund within 90 days versus, you know, so if you do that in April and you can get the money by what is that July versus you carry it forward the whole next year, obviously with proper planning, you can take that into consideration and, you know, change withholdings and things. But if some people don't do that, they're not looking at getting the, you know, the, the actual savings from that money that refund for a whole another 12 months. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. that's definitely, you know, something to think about. Even if you come apples to apples, you come out with the same savings. I mean, getting it, Nine months sooner is a heck of a lot better than waiting, you know.
0: Well, you just stumbled into the next question, right? Which is, should people be filing in April or October? Or how do people make that decision? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of different things to consider, right? So if you're someone who is expecting a, a large refund, like what Matt was talking about, then you might want to file soon so you can get that money and start investing it. Um, instead of keeping it with the IRS, where you get zero interest rate, right? <laughs> on the other hand, if you're someone who is not expecting a large refund, then it could make sense to consider filing extensions for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it gives you more time to gather your information, right? So, as a real estate investor, there are a lot of expenses and you know money that you spend during the year. This is a good time you have for you to get additional time on your side to gather those things. Uh, but also with the potential tax changes coming up in 2021, filing an extension gives you more insight into what does that actually look like? Am I going to be in a higher tax bracket? Are some of my deductions going to be limited? And if so, it can help you make a more informed decision on how to report your 2020 tax return. I know it sounds a little bit weird, but you know, one thing we're looking at, you know, let's say for someone who uh, has a lot of taxable income And if they're claiming, you know, real estate professional in both years, they can do bonus depreciation in both years, it could make sense to decide to do a cost segregation in the following year in 2021, if that person is going to be in a much higher tax bracket, right? So those are things to to consider. And also, filing extension just gives you more time to know what your transactions look like in 2021. Right. So am I, does it still make sense for me to accelerate certain write offs, knowing the transactions that I'm doing this year, as much planning as we try to do like
3: bonus appreciation, right? You can, Mm -hmm. you can either claim it or you don't have to claim it. So if, you know, saving it for 2021 or claiming less this year and taking more next year, makes more sense in your situation. That's, that's something to giving yourself more time to help you kind of see how 2021 pans out, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think as much as, as much planning as we like to do as an investor, there's always things that are surprising that come up, you know, like, Oh, I thought I was keeping this property, but I ended up selling it because of X, Y, Z reason. And so that just gives you more time to see what this current year is going to look like and how it kind of impacts everything.
0: So I think a pearl that people should hear is that with, if if you're going to do a cost segregation study and claim bonus depreciation, if you want to do it for your 2020, you just have to do it before you file taxes. So if you're filing April, you've got to do your cost segregation study before April if you want to apply it to last year. But if you're going to file an extension and do it in October, you have until October to actually do that study. Correct.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's one of the that's one of those things of giving yourself more time to do. And yeah. Because, you know, we've got some clients looking at doing it right now, but it's, you know, you're on the clock, obviously, because we're we're getting close to April 15th.
2: Yeah. And I just I want to say something. I probably get backlash from cost segregation firms. But, you know, last year we saw some new clients or new investors who went ahead and got a cost segregation done right when they purchased the property. And one of the issues is that if you get it done later on, right after the years over or close to the when the year's over, you decided that you ended up selling the property or maybe you didn't claim real estate professional status, or somehow you weren't able to actually use it, the downside is that you already paid for the study, right? That company already did the work. And so something to consider is maybe not necessarily prepaid to get the actual study done, but you can always get a free estimate from the cost segregation firm. So for planning purposes, we know what is the potential tax savings on that, but not maybe necessarily making that final decision whether to do or not to do, until you're certain you're of your ability to actually use it. it. Doesn't happen to a lot of people, but you know, I'm it's just fresh on my mind because I was just working with a client who had that issue where they decided to do a cost like really early on last year on a property that they actually ended up selling. Right. So it's like, well, what do I do? But you already paid for the study. So that was you know an expense. already done. Yeah, yeah. It's an expense. It's a tax write-off.
3: <laughs> the right off I think the other so, I think the other important thing to just make it make sure people understand too is if you are filing extension, it doesn't, it gives you more time to file, but it doesn't give you more time to pay. So that's really important as if, you know, if if you think you're going to owe taxes, you got to pay them by the April 15th deadline, even if you're not going to file until October. Uh, now, if you end up getting a refund, so be it, but you just want to make sure you have paid in enough by April so that, you know, the IRS doesn't want to charge you penalties later on.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Matt. And then going back to the cost segregation studies, I think what people have been told is if you're planning a ma- major rehab, maybe to consider doing the cost segregation study before, and then having another one kind of after doesn't mean that they have to go to your site twice, but, but doing that, how do you manage that is the, as CPAs in terms of making sure that people are able to write off the parts that they throw out when they do their mm-hmm. rehab, but then also getting that assessment afterwards, if they don't, if they're not sure if they're going to get reps that year, like how would you Yeah, That's them? the,
3: that's the balancing act to be honest. It's because it's, you know going to what man was saying you know it it's a cost right so if you you know want to pull the trigger and get them in there too because there can be there's a lot of value in that because they can go in and understand what the property looked like ahead of time what it looked like before you you know quote unquote made all the changes so when they go back and do that you know the second look later on they can quickly you know analyze what's changed right so it gives them a mm-hmm. gives the cost seg companies a leg up to be better provide more advantages to you in your terms of your numbers but yeah it's a thing like you know it's almost like the conversation like well how how likely do you think you're gonna to get to real estate professional status you know i mean are we 50 50 are we you know 80 20 like where are we you know because i don't know unless you have a th- different I think
2: it also depends on which cost segregation firm you work with, right, that there are cost like firms who say, hey, we can get the same benefit, whether we did that cost like in January, or for doing it the following year, because I'm able to see what was purchased, and you give me a listing of the rehabs you're done.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And
2: I know there are other cost like who say, no, I really want to be in there before you actually do the work. So that is certainly an interview question you have when you're talking getting proposals from different cost segregation firms and and figuring out like okay what is it i mean we're working with someone right now that they're um even looking they're doing a cost like for 2020 but also just talking to the client about 2021 where we know already they're they're putting in the pool even though it's the following year but the the cost like people are on board knowing here all the future renovations that are going to be occurring and they're doing it as one project right but on our end of course we're still splitting it out and figuring out what's the best way between the two years. But there's things that could be done as long as you're keeping that line of communication open to saying, okay, here's our plan as an investor. What's the best way to kind of approach it? And I think, uh, you know, a lot of cost-like firms I'm seeing aren't really doing site visits to the property necessarily, right? Where they're just having the investor or the property manager take pictures and things like that. And I think it's probably easy to, ju- you know, to document the before and after from that perspective.
1: This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did wanna point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at MD at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation.
3: This episode is brought to you by Keystone CPA. Are you tired of losing your hard-earned money to taxes each and every year? The truth is that tax savings is not just for the super wealthy. As a real estate investor, you too can take advantage of all the tax-saving strategies that are available to help you protect your hard-earned money. Top-selling authors and tax strategists, Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland specialized in tax-saving strategies, especially for real estate investors. Be sure to check out their website by going to www.keystonecpa.com. That's K E Y S T O N E C P A.com to work with a minute and Matt, And make sure to download the free ebook that is available on their homepage.
1: Maybe we can shift gears and talk about, uh, you know, we have a new administration, uh, and there are a lot of questions around, you know, what could happen with the tax laws uh two areas in particular one is uh 1031 exchanges and the other one is bonus depreciation uh, obviously i know you don't have a crystal ball but i mean do you have any kind of sense of uh, what what could happen and what the implications would be yeah i mean
3: it's it is uh it is kind of a, a big question right it's um a lot of the stuff he's talked about that they talked about leading up to the election was you know, some more specific items was talking about tax rate changes, uh, changes to capital gains, maybe Social Security taxes. And then some of these other things that you're talking about, 1031 exchange, bonus depreciation. That's kind of in the uh, what was that? It's, it's such a str- strange phrase. I can never remember exactly what he said. But
2: yeah. So what's interesting is the, the I think the phrase that was used is uh, the plan is to roll back unequal, unproductive Uh, Tax breaks for real estate investors making over four hundred thousand. Okay, I sort of memorized it. (laughs) Might not be every single word, but some those are the kind of the keywords. And and so you see, that's a very vague. You know, what's the definition of unequal and unfair? And what do we mean by rollback? And what does four hundred thousand mean? Is it? taxable income? Is it W-2? Is it rental income? And so that's all the, the, you know, the mystery at this point. But what we can see is clearly there is a target, right, for for increasing taxes on people making over $400,000, and also a target on real estate investors. There hasn't been any specific statements from the policy where they're indicating 1031 exchanges will be changed. Uh, in terms of elimination or a modification. So there has that actually doesn't exist in the tax policy proposal. But because some of the people in the campaign has indicated, oh, there could be changes to 1031 exchange, um, that's why you're kind of seeing the frenzy amongst investors and exchange intermediaries and us as CPAs <laughs> in looking at what does that mean and how does that impact us. And so I think there's, you know, it's just something that we're going to have to wait and see on what those changes are. But the good news is I think there's always going to be strategies if they were to take away or reduce the benefits of 1031 exchange. There's usually going to be strategies that we can still use to arrive at similar benefits, one example might be, you know, let's say they did take away 1031 exchange and we you know, not available for investors anymore. Right. That's kind of the worst case scenario. Well, there's nothing that prevents you from taking that money on the sold property and just buying more rental real estate. And so when you buy new rental real estate, you can use all the same strategies like cost segregation, bonus depreciation to create a loss. And those losses can offset the gain on the property you just sold anyway, right? So that's just one example of an offset strategy. It's not technically called 1031 exchange, but it's a way for you to effectively reduce the taxes on the gain
3: anyway. Or if they really are dead set on that $400,000 threshold, for whatever reason, you're still utilizing the same strategies to get your taxable income under Mm $400,000 so that you can take advantage of them, right? I mean, it's, you know, cost seg, bonus for real estate professional, retirement plans, whatever it is, right? It's just you know, if you can keep that, you know, if you get $399,000 of taxable income, you're in, right? Like, so uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out.
0: Yeah, it just encourages us real estate investors to keep buying every single year, right? To keep our incomes low.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one tip I would give is, Because it's unknown, right? We don't know it's possible it could change. So one of the things might just be to be prepared, you know, look at your portfolio, try to kind of figure out, are there any properties that you don't want to hold on to for the long term? You know, again, we don't have a crystal ball, but our expectation is that if there were to be changes to 1031 exchange, it would be on a go forward basis, right? They can't undo if you already did a 1031 in January or February, they probably not going to say that's no longer valid, but so it might be something that's, you know, the, you know, the remainder of the year or even 2022 and future. So if they do say the change will be 2022 and later, then at least you'll be ready and say, okay, in my portfolio, here are the two or three properties. I don't want to hold on to long-term. I can quickly do a 1031 exchange before the new limitations come into law. Right
1: Now, when we talk about bonus depreciation and, and we have this conversation a lot with our students, even if they were to kind of roll back bonus depreciation, my understanding is that there's still value in cost segregation studies and you can still take advantage of, I guess, what they call accelerated depreciation. Is that, is that right?
3: Yeah. So, yeah, exactly right. It's uh, um, because when you do a cost seg, what you're trying to do, right, is you're trying to take that 27 and a half year residential building and break it into five-year assets or seven or 15-year assets which by itself is great because now you've you're taking the write-off for five years instead of twenty-seven and a half. But then the bonuses kind of took it to a whole nother level, right? Because those five-year assets and those fifteen-year assets, you can write off one hundred percent all all of a sudden. So I mean, that's obviously awesome. You know, right now bonus appreciation is set to be one hundred percent, I think, for this year and next year, and then scale back to eighty percent the following year and sixty percent and down like that. Now again, that could change depending on you know what. They lump that into the Biden, you know, changes or what have you. But as of of right now, it's still available for 21 and 22. So definitely encourage people to kind of take advantage of it while it's there. Yeah.
2: And I just want to say, too, you know, there's certainly tax benefits of depreciation and cost segregation outside of bonus. Right. I mean, that's historically speaking, that's how it always worked. It's just now that we've gotten this extra added uh, bonus for that. But. With respect to the tax changes, there hasn't been anything specifically stated that that will be changed or be going away, right? I mean, we're all real estate investors here, so we're looking at it from the perspective of real estate, but bonus depreciation applies to all types of businesses, right? And so, you know, corporate, Amazons of the world. So, you know, there's, I don't think that that's something that wouldn't, they would necessarily be targeting because it's not really a real estate specific tax item.
1: Mm, Makes sense. Kind of going back to 1031 exchanges, one thing I I did want to talk about uh, that had been kind of circulating around uh, was this kind of notion of if you are 1031ing and you have a lot of personal property, that you're not going to get a lot of the benefits of the 1031. And I just wanted to understand how that relates to rental properties, because you know when we've done 1031 exchanges, uh, I've done a 1031 exchange into a mixed use property, and there was just a very, very small amount of personal property. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so they they actually, some updates to the law came out or some, I guess we'll call it explanations came out a couple of months ago to kind of clarify some things. So what what, the, what it's referring to with like cost segregation and 1031 exchanges, there was a question going around, well, can you even exchange personal property anymore? Can you even include, you know, if you've done a cost seg, can you, you broke out your five-year assets, can you even include that in, in your 1031 exchange when you go to sell that property? Uh, and the IRS came out and clarified that Yes, you can, provided that it's you know the personal property is about fifteen percent or less of the sale price of your property. Um, so that's one thing. That doesn't mean you can't do it if it's above it. It just means it's going to be scrutinized a lot more. Uh, and then the other thing is to, generally speaking, again every you know every situation is different, but generally speaking, you're going to want to, if you're selling a property with personal property, buying another one, you're going to want to try and have the personal property on the replacement property kind of equate equal to. The personal property on the property you got rid of, if that makes sense, just to minimize the boot and taxable income from the exchange. So I know that's a handful, but
2: yeah, we really haven't seen that to be an issue so far. I mean, we're so early on in the tax filing season, so we really haven't seen that to be an issue with respect to that 15% safe harbor. The the change actually came out quite a while ago in uh, 2017 where they said, OK, personal property no longer eligible for 1031 exchange. And so I think a lot of the cost segregation firms were you know, careful of the allocation when they're doing the breakout uh, between the different tiers of the asset. So I haven't seen one where it kind of exceeded that. But I think, like Matt said, even if you exceed that 15%, you know, you just have a, a very high percentage of personal property. It doesn't mean that you fail the exchange. Um, there's other ways to get around that because, you know, most of the time the, per- the value of those personal property is very low, anyways, in comparing to like the wholesale price. So if, in the very unlikely event that there will be recapture, it's probably not going to be a significant amount because it's probably not a significant gain on that end anyway.
3: Especially too, if you did a, you know, you bought the property uh, six years ago, you did a cost six six years ago, the personal property was worth more six years ago, relatively speaking than it is now. So I think there's some justification there too, that just because it was, I don't know, 20% of your purchase price six years ago, it may not be 20% of your sales price necessarily. You know, it could be, you've worn it out, you know, that kind of, that kind of argument. So. yeah.
0: Well, what is personal property? Can you kind of explain what would be considered personal property? Cause I, like Kenji said, we bought like a $600,000 property. I think we had $2,000 of personal property and it was a mixed use. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's, it's a lot of the stuff that, you know, in a, in a cost segregation study, what people think about is appliances, flooring um, fixtures, lighting. I know I'm missing some, but yeah, cabinets uh, countertops sometimes, you know, things like that that are not, I guess you could make the argument are not affixed to the property, you know mm-hmm. that you could rip out if you wanted to. I guess you know it's a lot harder to rip out a wall than it is to take out a refrigerator. But the nice thing about some of these these changes that came recently, the 15 year assets, which we call like land improvements, so you know driveways, sidewalks, trees, shrubs, fences, pools, that stuff is all still good to go for 1031 exchange purposes. It's, it's considered real property for 1031 exchange purposes, even though you got the benefits of the bonus depreciation from you know doing the cost take and things like that so that those are okay it's it's kind of more the five-year assets that are the ones that are people are
1: you know more concerned about I guess
3: mm-hmm.
1: I mean is five year equal to personal property or that's not yeah that's, it's it's kind of synonymous Synonymous. In- okay
0: okay but it sounds like as long as you're doing a 1031 exchange and really going bigger right you're yeah. probably more likely gonna get more new more personal property in the next property. So right. you will be able to more, most likely roll over all those gains tax deferred with the 1031 exchange and have no issues at all in this completely. Moved. Yeah.
3: And then another thing that I, uh, one of the cost that companies talked to us about was let's say in a situation like that where you're buying up, you know, maybe that difference in the buying up or whatever difference you're getting a personal property. So if your personal property is 100 grand on your, on your sold property, it's going to be 500 on your replacement property maybe the extra 400 grand you're bringing money out of the exchange into buying that extra personal property. So you've exchanged 100 for 100 and you just happen to buy an extra 400 outside of the exchange. So that's, that's another strategy that we've Ah, seen people talking about using.
0: So that the next time you do another exchange, you don't have to go up again, you know, and go. Yeah. And, you know, and
3: again, these, these laws,
0: this clarification
3: came out two months ago. They could clarify it again, five months from now, but that's, that's kind of the, (laughs) That's a strategy at this moment in time, right?
2: <laughs> By the time you do another exchange, it'll be a whole new right. set of rules. So don't worry about that yet.
0: <laughs> so can we ask a little bit about audits? Because I know this is always something on uh, our students' minds. And one of our students asked us mm-hmm. recently, "Well, what's the worst thing that happens if you get audited and the IRS wins? What does that look like in terms of penalties?" We didn't have a good answer, so I'm uh, to- assuming, they're, 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 assuming that there was
1: saying. nothing you you were you know you weren't intentionally you know, trying to avoid taxes, right? Like well, that takes a, away all
3: the fun of it. Come on.
1: Okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah.
3: Okay.
1: <laughs> I was going to say they kick down
3: your door in the middle of the night. They blindfold you. They...
2: Yeah. Well, first off, okay, just because you're audited and let's say you lose the audit with the IRS, that's not the end of the world, right? So a lot of times people could elevate that case into tax court, right? So all the, a lot of the things that we talk about in terms of strategies is a result of tax courts where someone did not agree with the IRS, they go to court, and sometimes, you know, you end up winning the case. So that's certainly one option. But let's say you, you're not doing that, you know, you clearly just, it was a, a wrong decision or if something was claimed incorrectly or, you know, deductions we couldn't substantiate or something like that, um, then generally you're going to pay uh, interest and penalties on the deficiency. So whatever the outstanding amount is that you should have paid, the interest and penalties are assessed. And the starting date for that would be the April 15th of that year that it relates to. So that's the part that kind of surprises people sometimes that usually if you're going to be audited, it's not going to be immediately, it's going to be a couple years down the road, um, just because there (laughs) generally is a backlog on the government side. And so right now, if you're audited for 2019, the taxes and penalties are assessed from April 15th of that of the following year.
3: So I think you- I think the typical penalty, it's in that situation, it's going to relate to the late payment of tax penalty. And that one's 0.5% per month that your tax is unpaid. So if you go back to, you know, April of the you know, previous year, you got to add up the number of months times, you know, 0.5% times your additional tax you owe. And that kind of gives you a penalty. Um, that's in most cases. I mean, obviously, there's the extreme cases where somebody. Grossly understates their income or something, you know, because of changes in the return, and you know if situations come up like that. I think the IRS get like they can actually tack on like a twenty percent penalty or something, you know. Yeah, so.
2: they call this considered an accuracy related penalty, where they feel like the the deficiency is so significant that you were. Not not you know not fraudulent or anything, but you were negligent, or it was something that you really should have known that created a you know a huge uh, change, and so that's where we see a much higher penalty of you know up to twenty percent. So that's the kind of you know you want to watch out for. But I mean, really, you know, now because it's time to file tax returns, the key is always to file tax returns based on the true activity, right? What you could substantiate that you did last year. Um, you never want to file something that says, hey, you know, I maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, I'm not positive, but let me go ahead and do it. Because if the amount's going to be significant, then you're looking at some pretty hefty fines that's associated. But I think on the other hand, you know, if you did all the things you were supposed to, you bought the property, you indeed made those improvements, you've spent the time on the real estate, there's no reason not to claim those benefits just because of the fear of an audit. Just because you choose not to write off certain things, you choose not to be aggressive on your return does not mean you won't be audited, right? You still could be audited. So uh, sometimes I come across people who they will tell me, oh, my CP said, don't claim this, don't claim that, because then if I'm audited, then they're more forgiving. I've never seen that to be the case. You don't get kudos for saying, oh, I just chose not to write something off.
1: And then uh, I think another question that we always get is, is around forming these C-corps for their uh, LLCs. And so it's kind of like a management C-corp to. I guess what 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 I understand is that you know you can use that C corp to kind of create additional tax uh, shelters, and so do. You, can you comment about that strategy, uh, or mm-hmm. have you seen that in your, in your clients using that, and and how they've been able mm-hmm. to use that to shelter income? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, that's when we see sometimes where attorneys will recommend a client. Uh, to form their own management company and so the question always becomes okay i have a management company that manages my rental properties so should that management company be a c-corp an s-corp or an llc and you know, with and anything see as
3: a sole proprietor, right? Like, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And then with anything in taxes, always it depend, right? Depend on the investor. But I think we can discuss like what we typically see. Okay. So for a lot of investors, especially starting out, or even maybe in the first five, 10 years of investing, odds are you're creating a tax loss, right? With depreciation and all these other strategies that we always talk about. And so from that perspective, if we have a loss. The downside of having a management as a C corporation is that if the, the money that we're shifting to the corporation ends up in a loss, then we don't get to use that loss personally to offset our taxes from income, right? So if my my management company is a C corp, it had a $20,000 loss, that loss remains in the corporation, Meanwhile, I'm personally continuing to pay taxes on my rental income, on my W-2 income, on my business income. And that's the the trouble with using a C-corporation for management company. Now, on the other hand, you might be an investor who maybe you are managing properties for other people. And it's truly a very profitable business where you're earning income. In that scenario, sure, it could be a C-corporation if the C-corporation has a lower tax rate than what you're paying personally. Right? But I think the the key thing is to ask yourself: Is my at my management company am I expecting that to be profitable, or am I expecting it to have a loss? If it's going to be profitable, C corp should be you know should be okay. If it's going to have a loss, you would instead want to have that be an S corporation. And the reason for that is, as an S corp, then those losses flow back to your personal tax return, and then you can use it to offset taxes on W two and you know other income that you have.
3: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, you know, not one size fits all, right? So like playing the devil's advocate, even if you have income or profit, you're expecting profit. The other thing to keep in mind is the C-Corp still have a double layer of tax. So the c Corp's going to pay tax and right now it's 21% flat rate, which sounds great. But then if you want everyone to take that money out and transfer it to your personal account because you're the owner and you want to use it to live off of and what have you, right? Well, you're going to pay another 15 or 20% in your personal return when you receive that money. So when you add those together, you're at, at least 36, 37%, which is the highest personal tax rate right now, anyway. And so there's always calculations and analysis you got to do before you just dive into something. Cause I think you know you kind of alluded to it too, right? Is some of the benefits that people talk about is retirement accounts. Well, you can have a retirement account for a sole proprietor business, you can have one for an S Corp, you can have one for a C Corp. Mm-hmm. So you can use utilize the same retirement accounts, whether it doesn't matter what your entity structure is. So mm-hmm. I don't think myself, that wouldn't be the reason to. Go with a c-corp over an s-corp you
2: know yeah i think there's a misconception too that in a c-corp you can write off more things than you can with an s-corp or an llc and that's not really true for maybe 99 of the expenses that most investors have you know where, where people talk about oh renting your home office from your corporation or writing off your travel and meals those things you know, you can write off regardless of whether your management company is a C-Corp or an S-Corp. But I think for some of the listeners, if you're someone who already formed a C-Corporation for your management company, and now you're listening, you're thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, I did the wrong thing. It's a fairly easy fix. All you have to do is make an S-Corp election, and then for tax purposes, that your C-Corp will just going forward, will be taxed as an S-corp. And then you get to have the flow through tax benefits of using those losses. So it doesn't mean you have to have a whole new entity or anything. You're simply changing how your current entity files tax returns.
0: For somebody who has real estate professional and they're just getting losses every single year, let's say, and they're not paying any taxes, is the only benefit of creating an S-corp in this case going to be that you can give yourself a retirement account and things like that or do, are there other benefits that would suggest that you should perform or uh, build an S corp
3: I think I well a couple of different like I think from a legal side or an asset protection side obviously we're not attorneys but you know you guys talk to enough of them too I think one of the benefits they talk about is segregating the I don't know the operations of the rentals and the management of the rentals from from you yourself right so that you know to a to a tenant it looks like you've got a management company so it kind of shelters liability uh, for lack of a better term from a tax perspective, if you're a real estate professional and you're getting losses anyway, if you're going to have your rentals pay a management fee to this, to this business, you're creating more loss into a personal, which you can use. That's fine. But when you get to the, to the management side of the business, you could be creating self-employment taxes, mm-hmm. you know, which, so you got to keep that into consideration too, that if you're going to do that, you definitely want to make sure you're utilizing a retirement account to bring the income down so that you're not, uselessly or, you know, paying self-employment taxes for no reason on the, on the money that you weren't paying self-employment taxes on before, you know, when it was just in your rentals.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, you know, creating active income to fund retirement is a good strategy, but we, we don't, it's not one that we use a lot, practically speaking, just because when people actually look at the numbers they say, wow, I have to pay more taxes just to fund retirement account. The decision usually ends up being no. I, I probably don't want to do that, especially for someone who is real estate professional because their tax rates are likely low anyways. But or I know- they're, or they're
3: not generating enough gross rents to right. cover the management fee that's necessary to make this whole thing work. You know, like yeah. are we talking about two thousand dollars in management, or are we talking eighty thousand dollars? <laughs> you know, like right.
2: it's Yeah, but I know it sounds like a really sexy strategy, and it certainly does work. We have used that in the past with clients, but it's, it's you know, I it's said it's a specific situation where you have truly a lot of management income that, that you're making from other people, right? Not just me paying myself and creating more taxes than I need to be.
0: Right. Again, the key is you want to talk to both your CPA mm-hmm. and your asset protection firm and figure out the right plan by sure. talking to both, because otherwise you're just doing one thing without talking to the other side. It's, it might actually cost you money in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amanda and Matt. And it's such a pleasure to have you guys back. Can you tell listeners how to get a hold of you um, if they're interested in exploring your tax strategy services?
2: Yeah, yeah. The best place to find us is actually on our company website. That's www.keystonecpa.com. And um, yeah, we have a lot of uh, additional resources, information, and a free downloadable ebook. So check that out.
1: Well, well, thank you, Amanda, Matt, uh, so much for uh, coming back to the show and uh, answering our questions. And uh, you know, th- these are questions that our, our readers are and and students are are asking us all the time so this has been really really awesome so thank you again
2: yeah thank you thank you for having us
1: yeah thanks so much it was fun
0: The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.